Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teachings Podcast. Um, this week, we've got kind of a heavier-hitting topic and one that has taken some time for us at CPET to wrestle with. Um, you know, last week was the 19th anniversary of Columbine, and there were walkouts nationwide kind of in response to the lack of response related to school shootings and gun control in this country. And so given kind of that uh, memorialization and that student protest, we want to have a conversation um, about kind of gun reforms, school violence, mass shooting in schools, and how we make sense of all of these things together. And so this podcast will be a little bit different than ones previous. Um, first, we're going to have a conversation kind of about uh, policy and how these numbers work out. And then the next part will be an interview uh, with Denise, who's going to talk more about what this means for teachers in day-to-day life, what this means for students, and how to wrestle with that complexity. Uh, so for the first part of this conversation, I have two distinguished gentlemen with me. Uh, we have Nick, who hasn't been on for forever. For a little while, yeah. Welcome back. Thank you. And as always, we have the beautifully bearded Brian Friebrecht. Hey, y'all. Um, so I guess the first thing I want to frame this conversation around, because I think that it's so crucial when we're talking about whether it's mass shootings or just regular school shootings, um, as horrible as those two terms are, and we can mm-hmm. unpack what that means in a little bit, why schools have constantly been the locus for these kinds of shootings. Like, why do we see people going back to either schools that they have attended, currently attend, um, with these firearms? I don't, I don't have a great an- you know, answer to that question. Uh, I don't know, do you, do you have like the numbers on relative frequency of school mass shootings and like non-school. So 538 uh, tried to tease this out um, in an article that they did, which will be in the show notes. But the problem that they found was how different people were labeling school shootings Mm. um, made it hard to quantify what that actual subset was. So, yeah, I don't have any um, particular, um, you know, research or data on this, um, but it seems to me that there are perhaps uh, two, you know, qualities that schools have. Number one is uh, it's a relatively vulnerable population. Um, so um, to the extent that someone goes looking for a soft target, um, uh, I wonder if uh, the school is unfortunately um, attractive in that way. Um, but the other thing is, uh, you know, the school occupies a particular place in our social fabric as an institution. Um, just about everyone in America has extended experience with a school. Um, there are relationships formed with classmates, with teachers, with admin and counselors and coaches. Um, and to the extent that the home or the school as a social institution is even a place where students can spend more time than even their own homes, mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's, it's a place where good things happen and it's going to be a place where bad things happen and it's going to be a place where of, um, um, of joy and of, of, of awfulness at the same time. Um, and so... I wonder if just because it's a place that's there and we all go to it um, and we all have um, feelings tied up in our experience in this kind of special social construct that we have. Well, and I think another thing to add to that, uh, just like to piggyback, is the unique role that it plays also as a like, coercive sort of institution yeah. in, in childhood, right? Yeah. Um, unlike you know, higher ed where you maybe choose to go or choose not to go, as a child, you know, until you reach the, the age of majority, I, you know, this is somewhere you, you have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be in some school or other throughout the duration of your childhood. And that can 
be again a really positive thing if, it, if it's a happy integrated affirming place for you to be but if it's not those things if it's a place that you find alienating and troubling right. um, that coercive push to be in this environment i think could probably exacerbate some of those feelings it could, could become a site of great anxiety and, and negativity as well partly because you just don't have the option of not going right so i want to ask a really difficult question that follows up to either of you and, and i don't know if we can actually answer this but Brian, you had said something about the vulnerability, mm -hmm. right, of schools. And so um, in an article from ABC News in 2016, so, you know, it is out of date, they had cataloged 50 uh, mass shootings at schools mm. um, since Columbine, and they uh, calculated 270 kinds of school shootings, whether that was considered a mass shooting or not. And those mm. were statistics from the FBI. And I believe in those numbers, too, to what you were talking about, Nick, it wasn't just K through 12, but also uh, institutions of higher education. Right. Virginia Tech stands out yep, um, as one there. And so thinking of these, you know, how many times this happens in this site of vulnerability, because when we're talking about policy debates and how we think about this, is there something about the school, not just people's connections to it, but I'm looking for the right words that is less resistant to maybe welcoming people into um, the school itself. So for instance, in the Newtown shooting, you had um, a child who was the son of a woman who taught there. So like him showing up at the building, right? There's not necessarily resistance. Mm -hmm. um, in the Parkland shooting, you know, um, over a month ago, it was a student who technically like shouldn't be at the school, but was part of that institution. And so I don't want to say that guards are down, but there's something about the accessibility of it in part because it is so central to American life. Is that part of the reason? Is that is that a correlation, but not really a causation? Because I do think we have to tread lightly when we talk about this, especially as we get into thinking about institutional responses to this. Yeah, I mean, the idea that uh, uh, public schools in particular are public spaces um, and they're open to anyone or, or do varying degrees like you know different schools have different security protocols and I mean certainly when you walk into a New York City school you sign in with school safety who are NYPD and show ID and all of those things but um, there are plenty of campuses around the country um, around the world where you just walk right in um, the, you know the door isn't locked there's no mm -hmm. fence even um, and so um, uh, I shy away though from the idea of adding layers of security um, or you know there's some you know there's some sweet spot uh, between um, you know open field and armed camp um, and um, I'm not sure where that lies mm -hmm. but um, you know I've, I've worked in an international school where before we went onto the campus which was ringed with a barbed wire fence they swept underneath our bus with a mirror mm -hmm. um, you know so like that's a very extreme security protocol um, as opposed to you know the school I just came from this morning where because the school safety officer knows me they just wave me right in so somewhere in the middle there is um, a, a place to, to, to a goal for us to set in terms of um, uh, hardening the target a little bit, if you will. But um, what is this, you know, the, the more layers of security we add onto a school, uh, what is the message, like what is the hidden curriculum of the secure campus? Or the repercussions. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Nick, were you well, about to say something? Yeah, I, I guess like even those two, like even having a school safety officer, to me, in my Canadian uh, like school experience, even that's really foreign. Right. Like 
we had no such thing. You came and go as you wish. School mm-hmm. was open. There was, you know, there was a sign, I think, near the door that said, visitors, please report to the office. Mm-hmm. It was sort of an invitation to report. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with that said, we also did have fewer, you know, per capita mm-hmm. school shootings. Um, and so we seem to have these even more open spaces, but at the same time, even less of this sort of violence. So I guess, like, just fr- from that anecdotal experience, it's not clear to me, at least, what the relationship is between, you know, uh, making schools more like bunkers and reducing harm. Right. Uh, yeah. And so I just want to highlight something that you just said, because I'm not necessarily taking a stand on this, but I think that was in the question is that we can make these correlations. But at what point are these correlations actually connected to some kind of causality? Or some third thing. Yeah, and what kind and where are we stepping in? Because the example that you give would say that yes, you have schools that don't necessarily have like the armed guards of a bank or something like that, but that's not necessarily the reason why you see these happening. Um, and I want to return to this, but I also kind of want to get into some of the nitty gritty about these school shootings. And so, um, in the same ABC News article that I referenced earlier. Um, 73% of shooters in these school shootings have no criminal record, mm-hmm. right? No arrests, no indications um, that something was going to happen. Uh, 96% of the shooters are male, right? So the, 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 these are like the knowns and unknowns, right? So we know it's predominantly male, but there's not necessarily predictive behavior that can be used to say like, ah, this is someone who might lean towards this, so maybe we need an intervention here or do that. And so having this certainty in terms of like a gendered certainty but not really anything else how how do schools respond to that maybe it's not the school's responsibility maybe it's the state's responsibility maybe it's the federal government i because i i don't hear that in the conversation so much is it about gun reform and kind of getting rid of assault rifle weapons but there's still this added layer of we have this knowledge that we know how can we use it or should it be used Mm -hmm. to help protect students in school i think it should most certainly be used i think any knowledge we have that can we can use to protect students in schools we should use Uh, in particular this um very very clear uh uh, genderedness of the, the the shooters um uh you know to the extent that uh the American scripts about masculinity celebrate violence and they celebrate um, a sort of rugged individualism and a, a reticence to share feelings, right? All of these things seemed, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but all of these things seem like really like um, uh, foundational to this idea that if you take a young man who is feeling alienated and cannot speak to, does not feel like he can speak to anyone about it, and has been taught through a variety of venues, not the least of which is sports, um, <laughs> that a way to express your masculine pent-up energy is through violence, well, you, you're going to get that. <laughs> so before you jump in, Nick, I want to add something onto that and put a question to you, Nick. And so, you know, one of the statistics that I didn't list is that overwhelmingly these school shooters actually take the guns from their own home right, or right. get them from someone that they know. And so as you critique this aspect of American culture, I think one could possibly reasonably make the argument that the accessibility of guns also allows that violence to be enacted. Certainly. 
And so, Nick, I, I kind of want to turn to you again from this Canadian perspective, because it's not like guns don't exist in Canada, but as you said earlier, we don't see these per capita numbers in Canadian schools. Yeah, uh, we, we do have guns. Uh, they're more heavily regulated, that's, this is my understanding, without getting into like the total nitty-gritty. Uh, we do have way fewer guns per capita than, the, than you do in the United States, like, you know, like most of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me that, like, the that policies around fire, you know, firearms, including in Australia and, and you know, throughout the world, can have a huge impact on the frequency of mass shootings. You know, you have conservative government in Australia mm -hmm. introduced gun reform laws and, you know, have since not had the kinds of mass shootings that you see. And they also had a massive buyback program, right, right. where they yeah. actually, federal dollars were used to buy people's guns from them. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like, you know, this is, it's obviously, uh, these are very different cultural contexts. We have our own, um, I think all of the, these other nations have their own canon inclusive points of inertia where mm -hmm. we can't see our own blind spots or things that might be barriers to making, you know, our communities safer for, for kids. Um, but I think that there is something to this idea. It just seems to me, like, undeniable that, like, if, if you're really concerned about people getting shot with guns, an important thing to do is not have guns in angry people's hands. And it, it, makes, it just makes me really sad. Like, you know, when I saw, uh, it was inspiring to see youth from Parkland standing up mm -hmm. and sort of challenging this tradition that as young people, they've been like less fully habituated into. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, really disappointing when you see the response of the adults that are just like, well, it's so obvious that this is how we do things around here, mm -hmm. right. you know, and that you're just young you know and you're missing these really important things but you know as someone who's been outside that sort of tradition it's just so much less obvious that this is how we ought to continue to do things um, wherever we are so i guess the follow-up to that because nick kind of where i see your argument going and correct me if i'm wrong but that a lot of this has to do there are these other things that be can be controlled but the easiest thing to do is to de decrease the amount of guns and the accessibility of guns um, and maybe that's not all you're saying, but I guess I'm wondering, you know, we've seen in action on that front for so long that it seems that there has to be a response. And mm -hmm. I mean, is it only federal gun legislation or state legislation that, you know, passed in Florida after the, the, the Parkland students protest that we think about these things? Are there things that schools can do? Um, I, I guess, yeah, I, I don't want to this to just be kind of sad and that the world is hopeless well, but uh, but what is what's reasonable right so it, it seems to me there are sort of like three i mean there are multiple influences here and there are, but the ones we're teasing out are accessibility of guns mm -hmm. um disaffected uh, uh young men in particular mm -hmm. um and then the vulnerability of schools mm -hmm. right and schools can do nothing about the accessibility of guns right so mm -hmm. that's just you know you have unfortunately you have to accept the thing you can't change there um, uh, there, I think schools, many schools are rightfully reluctant to sort of become, um, you know, stockades mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, metal detectors and bulletproof glass and all the, all the like actual like sort of um, uh, hardware implementations of security. So I wonder if our best lever of influence is to look especially at uh, young men's socio-emotional health. Um, and to talk to them about um, yeah, healthy expressions of negative feelings, talk about specifically about toxic masculinity and how um, this sort of 
notion of what it means to be a man is perhaps prompting violent behavior whether that's a shooting or just a you know a fist fight in the you know out in the parking lot after school mm -hmm. um, violent expressions of emotion are all too common amongst young men and so perhaps that's the place where schools might be able to have the most influence in this situation yeah, and, and an influence with ripple effects, potentially, that right. are just positive in all kinds of different dimensions of life, right? Yeah. When, you know, you think of incidences of gender-based violence on campuses later in higher ed or, you know, or in the high, in high schools, creating men who are healthier, happier, more integrated, more thoughtful about these things that they're experiencing yeah. just seems like a like a good thing to do not only for the, you know their communities but also for them yeah you know absolutely so I, I don't want to be a contrarian but I, I do want to make this a full rounded discussion and so is there is there a concern though about saying mm -hmm. that you know predominantly these shooters are male and as far as mass school shootings go predominantly these are white males and so we need to work on helping this disaffected youth but given that you know almost three quarters have no criminal record, um, no arrests, nothing like that, is there a fear of pathologizing male youths and becoming overreactive? And I put this in the context of thinking about you know mass incarceration has been a topic that many people have talked about you know for the last five years with great depth. And Elizabeth Hinton, who has kind of one of the um, most far-reaching historical works on this talks about part of why we see mass incarceration happen is you have police that are inserted in communities to make those communities safer mm -hmm. and what those communities then kind of had this narrative of is that they were not safe and that people were riddled with criminal intent and so this over policing kind of led to this mass incarceration now obviously that wouldn't happen with male youth but if you pathologize that male youth are violent that they're disaffected is there something negative that could come out of that or if something could come negative out of that it's a worthy trade-off or there's nothing negative that would come out of that we'll say a couple of things number one i don't know if we ought to pathologize male youth so much as we ought to pathologize pathologies. toxic masculinity <laughs> um, but then also pathologies so matt what i hear you describing are is a more sort of um uh, interventionist policing sort of thing that is to say let's find out who's got problems and let's go help them mm -hmm. um, in this sort of like the that's the, the sort of the gentlest reading of the policing model right. I'm thinking more of a preventative model rather than an intervention model can you speak more to like possibly what that could look like knowing that you're not gonna hit all the police? yeah how about from from the moment kids especially boys walk into schools we're having conversations about what it me means like to have feelings, mm -hmm. what it feels like to have feelings, what do you do when you have feelings, what happens when you are feeling um, uh, isolated, afraid, angry. Mm -hmm. Let's have a conversation about what it looks like to be a man who has feelings and knows how to talk about them, how to ask for help, how to give help. So to the extent that we can have a long-ranging conversation that speaks to the socio-emotional health of all students, but in particular, boys who have this, you know, the numbers bear out um, this, this, you know, unfortunately all, most of these shooters are boys or young men. Um, let's have a bigger picture conversation about what schools can do from the jump, from the moment a kid hits that school to start to, to talk about you know, violence and the fact that it's 
a thing that we need to work against actively rather than promote. Yeah, I mean, and what do healthy, not just, you know, male-female, but male-male relationships oh, look yeah. like? Like, what, what can an emotionally intimate, supportive ma- male community look like? Mm-hmm. I think this is something that, like, across the board, you know, you know, country to country, this is something we could all be doing a better job of if you just look at the statistics on violence of all sorts. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, like, a really important conversation. And it's one that, yeah, you don't have to be stigmatizing and saying, you know, you three men are the, the broken men who we need to address. I think it's something that it's really a community-wide kind of uh, focus that would be most beneficial to everybody yeah you know? and I mean not for nothing like the, the old um, the old trope of the man hug I'm, I'm hugging you but I'm hitting you bro right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the fact that that's a punchline that that's a joke and a trope I, I, even that's just like a, 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 the lowest yeah. hanging fruit example of the problematic nature of masculine expression of emotion yeah or the expressions of intimacy have to be uh accompanied by expressions of irony yeah right you know it's like i mean it but i don't mean it not like too much yeah right you know exactly yeah so i guess one thing that i want to build on that because i think that makes sense because what i understand you saying is that you know this isn't like a targeted program this is saying that our schools were trying to counteract this um culture of a toxic masculinity and though in some ways I think that could be really complicated because I think that gets in the culture wars that we've seen over schools since, <laughs> since the beginning of schools. But to me, in some ways, it's a clear path forward. In terms of the other interventionist response, right? So in this same ABC where, study where I've been gathering a lot of these statistics from, 81% of the school shootings, someone had an indication yeah. or had reported that something was going to happen. And so in some instances, such as the Parkland uh, instances, there was a lack of action. Mm-hmm. Um, others, that action wasn't enough. Um, so even if someone's not arrested, it seems that there are other barometers that might indicate this. How can those voices be leveraged? In what way is that information shared? How is that information responded to? And is that something where the school says, we have this information, but it's beyond our capacity to respond to and hands it to another public institution? I was having a conversation with a colleague the other day about the, the notion of mandated reporting in, um, uh, you know, in schools. And you know, uh, school professionals are mandated reporters uh, when it, if, you know, if, if you, we have some um, uh, reasonable suspicion that a student is being abused at home, for example. We are mandated to report that to the appropriate professionals who are meant to intervene. Um, uh, and the, my colleague was, was saying that um, any sort of notion of um, even an inkling of this kind of um, isolation or disaffectedness um, ought to be put into that category of what needs to be mandated, it, what is mandated to be reported. Um, that is to say, let us uh, wide or broaden the umbrella of the sort of behaviors that would trigger a report. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still unsure about that. Mm-hmm. But um, to the extent that, um, you know, going all the way back to Columbine, these ideas of the, the warning signs and we, you know, in, whether it's in students writing or in their art or in conversations that are, that are going on. Or social media now. Or social media now in particular. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm dated because the, I go all the way back to Columbine. Um, uh, but uh, this idea that um, these things are, the information is out there and um, how seriously we ought to take it and how um, direct our interventions ought to be when there are some sort of concerns or suspicions 
Um, that's getting into some really sort of tricky territory. Um, uh, just like any sort of um, s escalation into a system, that is to say, like if we're gonna, you know, refer students to healthcare authorities, or are we gonna re refer them to penal system authorities, police? Um, now we're starting to get into some 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 tricky territory in terms of um, once we send a kid out of the school, mm -hmm. then yeah. we kind of lose some of the uh, influence that we have there. Yeah, and I think that that like circles back a little bit to the issues that Matt was raising earlier when we were talking about more targeted interventions mm -hmm. that are less preventative and holistic, but then are saying, you know, does that student look alienated? Do, do, do I interpret their utterances and expressions to be of a threatening or alienating yeah. sort? Um, and that's where, you know, issues of implicit bias start to rear their, their head, where we might start to worry that some kids are going to be more likely, probabilistically, to be identified as like the problem kids right. and have whatever sorts of interventions those are thrust upon them. And that that even might even have a self-confirming thing where the school kind of marks to those students that they're in some ways like outsiders or not connected. Um, and, and then I think some of the worries that, that Matt was raising really start to like gain their force. Like, how much do we trust each other mm -hmm. to make those identifications in the right way at the right time in a way that actually improves safety yeah um, rather than you know further is the alienation of some populations yeah and I think the distinction between like ref reference to a healthcare mm -hmm. um, individual or institution compared to kind of a penal mm -hmm. healthcare institution or individual it is an important one and I think you know it's so difficult I think in this conversation it's often easy to talk in broad strokes what we hope for but when you have a student who is troubled and can possibly, you know, do damage to his or her fellow classmates. Um, that that's tough to wrestle with that, but you don't want to go over the top because you don't want to falsely accuse, falsely yeah. criminalize, and, and do something with that. And I, I really appreciate your guys's commentary because I don't think this is at the forefront of the conversation yeah. right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and I think this this actually goes back um, a podcast we heard a long, long, long time ago about student discipline mm -hmm. and um, the idea of having. Um, intersubjective relationship with your students rather than objectifying them sort of the, to objectify a students you know like let's say you've got a, a kid who's really into Scandinavian heavy metal which is very very dark yeah. you know so one approach would be like did you see the kid listening to the metal mm -hmm. I better refer him to guidance or hey Nick I heard you were listening to, to, to some pretty heavy metal yeah I really into it oh can I listen to some too tell me about it why are you into that like what's interesting about it so get to know the student as social democracy that's what's interesting about Scandinavia and their, <laughs> right. their heavy metal <laughs> exactly social democracy no but the, the idea and I you know you know apologies to all the Scandinavian metalheads out there just pulled that one out of the thin air but appreciate it the idea is if if if, a, if you have a if a, if a school-based professional has a concern about a student mm -hmm. talk to the student Right yeah. in a very like in a non-threatening, non like I need to talk to you about this sort of way, but more along the line of I would like to get to know you a little bit better and what's going on, um, and and not what's going on a problem, but just what's up, what's up, hey, that's loud, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's loud, I like it loud, you know, well, like have and, that yeah. conversation, and I think if like we're talking about forked interventions that are leaning more towards like health and well-being mm. interventions rather than calling the cops right away on, yeah. on students um you know what's what's the risk oh by accident maybe we get you too much mental health support you know like if, if that were the the biggest risk that we right you know had to face as a society was that some kids are getting too much mental health support yeah um I, like that would be one i'd be willing to, willing to deal with but i think i think you're exactly right just so that that doesn't become an awkward thing 
Yeah, get to know people. Yeah. Know, so, your, know your students. Not to be nitpicky, but I think this is also the complexity of the world that we in. You say, like, a student might get too much mental health services. That might not be how the student internalizes it, right? right yeah. They may feel ostracized in that way because of the stigma in this country around mental health. And that's... Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways we're coming full circle because we're talking about the interconnectedness of school, these shootings, mental health, guns, culture, right? Like it's it's not something that we can easily parse out and talk about, well, if we look through this lens and focus on this. And even our conversation, which originated kind of at broad pictures and policy, has been reduced to individual interactions with students because it's so hard mm-hmm. to have that conversation any other way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- perhaps this is like a, a moment of, uh, to, to express a, a note of optimism, which is kind of like uh, difficult for me to even say, but um, so on April 20th, 1999, I was like three weeks away from graduating university and I was pr- finishing up my studies so that I could go and become a middle school teacher. Um, and so I have never worked, like I was the last generation of people who was kind of brought up in the pre of professionals. Mm-hmm education professionals were brought up in the pre-Columbine paradigm. And I knew going forward that work in schools was going to be forever changed. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've been working now for the past 19 years. And thanks for putting a number on that. Um, But then also, um, I was reading some essays written by students. Uh, I was reading them this weekend. And a lot of students were talking about bullying, were were writing about bullying, they were writing about depression. They were using language uh, around uh, non-stigmatized language to mm. talk about mental health, which is not a thing that seemed to be uh, like part of the wider conversation mm-hmm. when I started teaching. And I couldn't help but remark to my to a bunch of teachers as we sat around and read these student essays, like, isn't this great that we can actually have open, honest conversations about mental health and our students are having they have mm-hmm. that language now that we didn't have when we were kids um, and so I wonder if even as these shootings continue to happen if we will continue to have a conversation again there's the there's the gun control side mm-hmm. of things and that conversation is is ramping up and let's go with that but to the extent that within schools we can keep just talking about talking and mm-hmm. talking through things I don't know. I wonder if well, things are things are potentially looking up. <laughs> and, and continue to hold up space in schools for conversations and efforts and resource allocations that support like human flourishing. Yeah. Not only your academic flourishing on the state test, but like also your flourishing as a human being, as a member of a community, mm-hmm. as a member of a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it just seems that sometimes those things get crowded out um, yeah. as we narrow in on other other areas of focus due to the mandates that we operate under. Uh, but it just seems so crucial if we care about things like having safe schools you know, in addition to test-performing schools. That's right. That's right. Well, again, thank you guys so much for this conversation. And for those of you listening, uh, please continue to listen as our next conversation comes at a more personal level with Denise Daniels as she and I talk about this era of protest and student voice and teacher voice within these protests and how to navigate that. But thanks again, guys. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, y'all. I now want to bring in one of my favorite people in all of CPET um, to talk about not so much at the broad level and the policy level, but like what does this actually mean for teachers and students? And so there's no one better to have here to do this with me than Denise. Hi. Um, So Denise, I guess, you know, Nick and I had just finished this conversation about kind of why schools are sometimes the centers of these shootings, um, how frequent they have been in the last decade. 
and, and kind of that broader conversation, but what I really want to talk with you is what does this mean on the ground floor for students and teachers? And my first question is how do teachers talk to students about this? Because there's one in the aftermath of these shootings, the conversation, but then there's um, you know, an active shooter drill that will be done in school sometimes in response to that shooting and what can teachers say to students, but then students might also come up and ask and it doesn't seem something a teacher can brush away and say, oh, like we'll come back to. So, I mean, how do teachers handle this? Um, the best um, response is an authentic one um, because oftentimes students don't see us as people. Mm -hmm. um, students will often see us as a teacher. And, you know, when the lights go off, the teacher stays. And then you come back, <laughs> the lights turn on, the teacher's still there. And, you know, we go home, we have lives. And the reality is, is we have feelings and opinions and voices and tears and connections and hugs and, and professionalism. And so there is a wonderful, well, almost a cruel, wonderful opportunity here to have real conversations mm -hmm. that go beyond some of the seemingly um, seemingly I guess uh, seemingly bound seemingly created mm -hmm. boundaries right in that you get to have uh, an authentic structured conversation as well mm -hmm. because when the conversation is structured um, in response, not necessarily in reaction, you get an opportunity to hear all voices because everyone has an opinion. Can, can you elaborate what you mean by in response instead of in reaction? So in reaction often has a, a level of, there's a level of like emotion that sometimes clouds some of the opportunities. Because they, this is a difficult conversation. Make no mistake. Mm -hmm. What it offers here is a response is like a planned, set-aside time where whatever comes up is going to be addressed. Mm -hmm. In reaction can sometimes feel very volatile, can feel very re like um, just responding to kind of mm -hmm. the hot topics and and the like versus a response is really creating a forum so that everyone can bring their opinions from their vantage point. Mm. And sometimes you don't even recognize that we're not standing at the same vantage point. Mm -hmm. And so this is an opportunity for us to come together and really puzzle through some of the new ways of working that have become required. So, I mean, I think what I'm hearing you say, and tell me if this is wrong, but that teachers, with how fast-paced the news is, with things like this, really have to think intentionally about how they want to have these conversations, because they have to anticipate them, because they're going to happen, and think about what is the way that I respond, whether that's an individual response, whether that's a cultivated space in the class to respond to be able to handle that. Is, is that right? And the cultivated space can look many ways. It doesn't necessarily have to, because you know your you know your class best. Mm. So it could very well be from one class to another. It looks slightly different, but the intentionality is around the dialogue, mm. and so that there is space created for folks to process, because many children process um, verbally, mm -hmm. and to be able to 
even have space where where there's real communication and connection around this is what what I'm really feeling. Mm -hmm. This is some language to help me articulate some of the things that are coming up in response. And also there's an opportunity to, to, to be political, if you will. Mm. When the students decided to not just in an isolated space respond mm-hmm. by walking out when they created this national conversation. And so then schools were then struggling to catch up. Oh, wait, okay, these are, here are yeah. some supports here. And, and to hear the schools and to be with schools around how do you support the students who are doing this. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it was such a, it was a privilege to really see young people speaking up Mm-hmm. And holding the adults in their lives accountable to the ways in which they wanted to process this and mm-hmm. the ways in which they wanted to protest. So I I just thought it's not the message, it's it's the it's the it's the stand. Mm. And and knowing that you have the right to speak. You don't wait to a magic age and then you speak. You have the right to respond. Can I actually follow up on that? Because I think when you're talking about this, the students, and I know with teachers that I've been talking with, something that they've been struggling with is there's this idealized version of an apolitical teacher, Mm. right? Like he or she doesn't kind of espouse their views. And for a lot of teachers, this has become difficult because on the one hand, they may have political beliefs, which push them to believe that, you know, increasing guns in school is a good thing or, you know, trying to get rid of guns in general. Uh, for broader safety is a good thing. But also, they're not just having these opinions as citizens. It's becoming part of the profession because Mm -hmm. these are happening in schools. So in some ways, they are a stakeholder who wants to voice, but because of this identity, right? Like you were talking about the teacher identity earlier, can't do that. So how can teachers navigate that? How can they think through that in a way to be supportive um, of students, but to also... Um, achieve what they would like to for themselves. Yeah, navigate is a great word because the profession already requires you to create a neutral space. And it's a neutral space for students to begin to form their own opinions, processes, procedures around making sense of the world. So because things have become so inflamed, Mm. it's almost as if this neutral space that I'm supposed to hold as an educator Mm -hmm. no longer applies. And it applies more now than ever before. Mm -hmm. And so my recommendation is certainly to find spaces to have those conversations so that you don't feel silenced because you're holding this space. And have those conversations with students, with others in the school, I guess. I would definitely, I would definitely, I don't know any educator that doesn't have an educator friend. (laughs) (laughs) So it's so it it, it oftentimes will be that, you know, on the weekend, it's like, well, let me tell you about my, no, let me tell you about my (laughs) class. And so uh, there is definitely a place and a space for having conversations. I don't necessarily know that even if you do have the conversations with your students, that you're not creating undue bias Mm. because again, your job is to hold that 
to the best of your ability. Right. Because we are people, right? Despite the lights on, lights off scenario in any <laughs> every student's mind. <laughs> but we are we are people. And so we 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 will have times where, you know what, today is just one of those days. Mm-hmm. And the students get that because they connect with us at that level. Mm-hmm. So there is room to clear so that it's not so at the front that it's it's mm-hmm. bursting to come out. But if there is a conversation that it's it's really professional to at the very least present both sides. Hmm. Because then at least you get to speak your piece and you also get to entertain the counter the counterclaim, right? The counter argument. Mm-hmm. And I said entertain because I listen, I don't believe half that knowledge <laughs> I'm joking. But there is there is there is always an other side. And so helping students recognize that is just as important for us to hold that as well. Yeah, and I think like what you're saying is something that you know, it really takes a teacher holding his or herself accountable to do because it, it is so hard to do, especially when you feel threatened. And I mean, I, like what I'm hearing you say and tell me if I'm understanding those, like your words incorrectly, but it's kind of the student's development and processing of this information when you're at school is what takes precedent. And so that's what you're trying to foster um, and fuel and help with students do rather than saying like, here's how I feel like, I, yeah, like we're going to do this together, but that your job is to create that space for processing and to bring in information that they may not know. Because they have their access points mm-hmm. and they have habitual ones to, to some extent. So as the, the educator and even more as the, um, the curator almost mm. of some of the information, right? Because gone is the day of educators know all, right? right. Like we're really curators now. <laughs> facilitators of information <laughs> really and so sometimes you have students who will hold fast to a side because mm-hmm. they've never thought about the other side or they've never been in conversation that actually troubles some of the things that they're believing and saying and it's not even their convictions they're simply repeating things that other people have given them to mm-hmm. hold on to and so as they're creating their own understandings and their own beliefs this is the time and space where we get to as professionals hold that space and to your point Many schools are recognizing that that is becoming more and more difficult, right. and so they are creating spaces for teachers to come together and have dialogue separate from the students mm-hmm. so that they can start to figure out some of the ways and process so that they're able to go back and hold that neutral space. Yeah, and I think what you're saying brings out a larger point that sometimes, because educators do typically lean more to the left, gets lost in this debate, is that the students in your classroom may have a wide ranging set of views. I know a group of high school students that I was talking with, um, you know, in New York, which seemingly are, you know, they're, they're sophomores and seemingly left in kind of their views of the world, had so much trust in their teachers mm. that they wanted the guns in school because that. And so sometimes we can let our own views mm. get in the way or say that's a wrong view instead of creating that space um, to let students filter with that, even though it may be hard with us because of how we feel. There's one other kind of big topic that's been covered that I want to ask you related to schools and students, and that's this idea of arming teachers mm-hmm. and the risk that that would put students of color and students in low-income communities' mm-hmm. lives in literal jeopardy because 
there has been for a long time tracking of data that shows that students of color and low-income students are disproportionately punished and are punished more severely mm -hmm. um, for the same offenses. And so adding a gun to that equation for a lot of people has added up to the possibility of a student of color or a low-income student being shot. How, how do we have this conversation? How do we talk about this? And I mean, at what point do we engage both sides or say this is something that is realistically a possibility? It's interesting to consider arming teachers because there was a time when things like a teacher having CPR training was foreign. Like, yeah. really, why would we, we have a school nurse? Like, that's just preposterous. And now it's more and more common that you'll have these drills and you'll find mm -hmm. out, oh, my goodness, like, way like more people are certified than I thought. Yeah. And so, and... So to continue with that, there are many people who are fully licensed and, mm -hmm. and, and they go to the gun range and they, they, are, they have, they have the, the knowledge and expertise to responsibly mm -hmm. um, be armed. That said, it, it's a, it begs a larger conversation because when you have... Um, a disproportionate number of people who are in schools of color, mm -hmm. teaching students of color, not people of color, right. that becomes a bit problematic because when I am fearing for my life, I'm working through, you know, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And so are there things that can go wrong? Yes. But that, that can happen for anyone. Mm -hmm. And so the, it's such a, it's such a new like a nuanced conversation because the conversation is simply do we arm is not okay well then who gets armed mm. is it the principal is it the is it the is it the, is it one teacher for per floor is like yeah. when you think through the logistics of it like okay so you start to think of these Seemingly simple. I was just talking about this today. Like deceptively simple solutions yeah. that are beyond complex, because there's a whole host of things that come to the fore. And the unfortunate thing is, is in our country we're still struggling with people really being seen as humans, mm. not by color, by gender, by by orientation. Like mm -hmm. so. As a country, we really need to work on acknowledging the humanness of everyone. Yeah. And then maybe we can have a conversation about protecting um, humanity. And so it's it's such a complex... We don't even have time to unpack <laughs> no, but all I mean, of the, I think, this, this, you know, like... But I, but I think, like, what you're saying is really good because, you know, we're focusing on this specific aspect of it. But what you're drawing attention to is that the larger debate is just whether or not to arm not even thinking about these little sub conversations that fall within that that at its core is like a question of how do we view each other how do we view kids like you know and how can that influence how a weapon can be used because it's so easy to say a weapon but what if it's what if the active shooter is a child and the person who is in that situation is a parent. Well, I mean, again, deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. Oh, you can just arm them. Yep, 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 done. There's so many moving parts to it. And 
I guess the heartbreaking piece is that so many times it is there are there are really there are young people because we didn't even discuss mental illness and how sometimes you have um undiagnosed mental illness that comes into play with with people who are um, committing violent acts in school settings or in um, settings with young people. Mm -hmm. So there's just so many um, parts to humanity that we really need to get a handle on, a responsible handle on, before we then start to think through these broad, like, oh, that's, I mean, they have a gun, we have a gun. Done. I mean, you know, it's not quite that simple. So I'm going to take that as a no. (laughs) I'm going to take that as a no. But, I mean, I I really appreciate your time today. And I think hopefully you've given a framework for teachers that are listening that maybe they won't follow to a T, but that can help them think about, you know, how to create these spaces to have conversations with their students and how to maybe process themselves when we are living in a world that's so polarized, Mm -hmm. that every issue is you know, embedded with so many kind of perceived moral and cultural values without talking about the specific points that really make the simple so complex. Indeed, indeed. And just really being honest with yourself Mm -hmm. is the beginning of the journey because it, it, it can be Again, deceptively simple to hide behind the persona. Oh, well, I'm a teacher, so it doesn't. No, you you think something in there. (laughs) And you get to have your opinion and your feelings. And you also get to hold space for the students to process theirs as well. Well, that's... No, that's really helpful, Denise. And thank you so much for taking the time. And hopefully you'll be back soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye.